Welcome to Psydactic, Residency Edition, your podcast resource to survive and thrive in your psych residency. I am Dr. O'Leary, and as of this recording, I am a second-year resident in the National Capital Consortium Psychiatry Residency Program. However, make no mistake, I do not speak for this program, nor do I speak for the Department of Defense or the federal government or anyone else for that matter. What I say is my opinion, and I reserve the right to be wrong. So trust me at your own risk. It's a risk some are willing to take. References and recommended readings can be found at the end of the show transcript, located at sidactic.buzzsprout.com. In the previous episode, we took an imaginary train ride through some of the circuits in the brain that are thought to play major roles in the pathogenesis of obsessive-compulsive disorder. In this episode, I will quickly explore how to treat patients with OCD. Choosing first-line treatment is relatively straightforward, but I found less clarity on how to proceed if my patient does not respond. It is imperative, then, to make sure that I understand my patient's symptoms and their goals very well. It may go without saying that we need to establish some kind of partnership with our patients. We can't assume that because the patient is sitting in front of us desperate for some relief that they will be willing to partner with anyone who gives them some advice. Establishing a therapeutic alliance is more involved. A therapeutic alliance is not a process where I tell the patient what to do and they comply or not. It's a process of developing a relationship. The patient needs to understand two important things. The first is that, as a provider, I have at least a decent understanding of what is happening to them. OCD can have a broad range of symptoms. I may have given them a symptom rating scale like the Y box, but that doesn't mean that I have a good grasp on their symptoms or that I understand exactly how those symptoms are affecting their life. That cannot be captured on a form. That's the result of a continuing conversation and needs to be updated regularly. The patient needs to understand that I don't just understand their disease, I understand them. I understand what their understanding of their disease is. I understand how it affects their life. I understand the factors in their interpersonal and cultural interactions that create distress or provide comfort to them. But for therapeutic alliances, the patient needs also to know that I can do something for them They may know that I have a great understanding of what's going on, but if they don't believe I can offer them something to relieve their suffering, then why would they align with me? To do something for someone, I have to understand their goals. Goal setting is a compromise just like anything else. If a patient comes to me and says, I want all my symptoms to go away and never come back, I'll have to find an effective way to steer them towards something more realistic like, How about we make some achievable short-term goals and see what we can do to improve your daily functioning right now? What is the thing that most interrupts your day? Once we have realistic goals, then we can start talking treatments. The treatments I'll outline are primarily based on the American Psychiatric Association Practice Guidelines for OCD. 
You probably know that first-line pharmacological treatments for OCD are the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, especially the selective varieties such as fluoxetine, fluvoxamine, peroxetine, and sertraline. The APA does not recommend any particular SSRI over any other, so it is reasonable to use citalopram, escitalopram, or others. Clomipramine, a tricyclic serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, is also FDA-approved. There does not seem to be really any good evidence that any one of these is much better than any other, but risks and side effect profiles differ substantially. I am going to apologize now. In the last episode, I spent a lot of time discussing how the brain makes decisions about what to do and talked about the corticostriatal thalamocortical tract in excruciating detail. If you remember, those neurons involved were glutamatergic and GABAergic, and the GABAergic ones were heavily modulated by dopamine. How do serotonergic agents modulate this system? The best answer is, I don't know. So, I'm sorry that I can't actually take this previous knowledge and connect it directly to our treatment plan. SSRIs work because that's what we have the best evidence for, not because we have a priori reason to explain their actions. To get back to the SSRIs, when choosing the first one, efficacy is really not part of the decision. They're all about the same. So look at your patient as a whole, consider side effect profiles, comorbid conditions, likelihood of pregnancy, etc. when deciding, and let the patient know exactly why you chose a specific medication. Also, don't forget to set realistic expectations for the first four to six weeks the medicine may take to be at least partially effective, and the eight to twelve weeks needed to assess its maximum efficacy along with the high likelihood that the dose of any medication will have to be increased beyond the usual maximum dose. Also, don't let your patient be surprised to find out that more than one medication may need to be trialed, and sometimes you need to add on a second medication. If a patient is amenable to also do CBT, then combining this with pharmacological agents may help enhance the effect and might make relief more durable for patients who want or need to discontinue medications. Not surprisingly, CBT, such as the exposure and response prevention therapies, or ERT, that has a focus on behaviors instead of just cognitions, is what is initially recommended. A patient may have very good insight already into their disease, and so enhancing their cognitive abilities may do very little for them. For those with poor or limited insight, depending on why this insight is limited, adding on cognitive components may be necessary. However, any CBT seems to be better than no CBT. If you can remember back two episodes, I mentioned that people with OCD most often are able to identify that their obsessions are probably unreasonable or exaggerated, and that their compulsions likely do little to change the real world. But there are a minority, less than 5%, that have frankly delusional beliefs surrounding their symptoms. 
If a patient is amenable, including trusted family members in a treatment plan, may help to provide a delusional patient with the greatest chance of improving their functioning. Many patients have only a partial response to their initial therapies. By partial, I mean that they've improved but haven't met their goals and are still living with some kind of intolerable dysfunction. You may have used like clinical global impression scale or the Florida obsessive compulsive inventory or the Y-box scale to track their symptoms, but don't forget to ask the patient themselves whether they want to try more or not. Don't just say your scores are low enough that we should add another medication. Find out if that's consistent with the patient's goals. If the patient says let's do more, then the APA recommends that augmentation strategies be tried instead of switching to another SSRI. If they have no response, you would switch to another SSRI. If they only have a partial response, you use an augmentation strategy. If all the patient has tried are serotonergic agents, then this is a good time to tag on that ERT. If they've already tried this, then you can try increasing the intensity of their ERT. Once you've established that a patient has had an adequate trial of their first-line medications and CBT, if amenable, and have only had a partial response, then it's time to think about augmentation. First, consider augmentation of SSRIs with low doses of second-generation antipsychotic medications, including aripiprazole, risperdone, olanzapine, and catiapine, or low-dose haloperidol. There's not much evidence to help you choose between them as far as efficacy is concerned, but side effect profiles can help you make a choice. As you can probably guess, there are serious questions about the trade-offs between using antipsychotics for the long term. We have our extrapyramidal symptoms, metabolic syndrome, amenorrhea, gynecomastia, etc. And you should take substantial time building alliances with your patient around acceptable risks, costs, and benefits of antipsychotic treatment. So if you get to the point where you've tried SSRIs and your patient either had no response and you switched to another one and maybe they had a partial response and then you augmented or they didn't respond to SSRIs so you just augmented to see what would happen and nothing has worked to this point. There are so many other potential strategies that I'm reminded of a proverb that a surgeon once told me while repairing a pilonidal cyst. He said, if there are a bunch of treatments for the same thing, it means none of them really work. Other strategies to treat OCD include changing from an SSRI to venlafaxine, augmentation with clomipramine, buspirone, mirtazapine, lithium, dextroamphetamine, topiramate, lamotrigine, inacetylcysteine, and even memantine. You can also try RTMS, repetitive TMS, deep brain stimulation, or neurosurgery as a last resort. In my TMS series, I mentioned the use of RTMS and OCD, but unfortunately, the evidence for efficacy does not really warrant a recommendation of do this. It can be tried for treatment-resistant OCD, but unless your patient is completely against trials of both medications and psychotherapy, and this is not something to try first or even second. TMS is attractive because 
It's impressive to patients. It's less invasive. It has fewer systemic side effects than other treatments. But in its current form, it's just not likely to get the job done. According to a 2019 systematic review of brain stimulation techniques published in current neuropharmacology, deep brain stimulation showed good results when targeting connections between the nucleus accumbens and the ventral capsule or the subthalamic nucleus. You might suggest this before suggesting something like cingulotomy. DBS and surgery are reserved for severe and intractable OCD. Surgery, of course, involves cutting or ablating tracts during procedures such as capsulotomy, limbic leucotomy, and cingulotomy. Gamma knife radiosurgery has also been explored. Surgery is so infrequently used that the evidence for it is limited primarily to just case reports, but improvements can be substantial. Side effects can be substantial as well. If OCD symptoms remit because the patient is made intractably apathetic, then the benefit may not be worth the cost. This episode included a wild romp through the possible treatments for OCD. I spent time harping on building a therapeutic alliance with your patient because for disorders that are chronic and as difficult to treat as OCD, lack of adherence to a treatment plan is the easiest way to guarantee that it won't work. The first step is easy. Start an SSRI if you can, and recommend CBT. But after that, it gets really fuzzy. I'm Dr. O, and this has been an episode of Sidactic Residency Edition. Thank you.